In Exodus chapter 15, we have a statement that is made that is of great interest to me. It's down in verse number 22. The Bible says, So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of shore, and they went three days in the wilderness. The Bible says they found no water. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read the Word of God, when a statement is placed there in the text of Scripture, that I find is, and I want to be careful how I say this, we could maybe use the word superfluous. We could maybe use the word overly descriptive, and I'm cautious and I'm reverent how I use that. I'm not suggesting it don't need to be there. I'm saying if it's there, and we say, well, why do I need to know that? We ought to stop and think about it and study it to try to find out why the Holy Ghost decided that we needed to know that fact. When you read the text of Scripture here, if it had uh, read this way, so Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea and they went out into the wilderness of shore and found no water, we would on casual observance say there is nothing substantive that has been taken out of that text. We would say, why do we need to know that it was a three-day journey into the wilderness? Why is it so important that we know how long it took them to travel from the Red Sea to a place called Mara and find there no water. Well, when we follow the leading of the Holy Spirit in, in obeying the text and reverencing the text, we find that there is actually a very good reason that God tells us that it took them three days into the wilderness to get to this place. If you were to search out that phrase, three days into the wilderness and similar phrases, you would find that there are four occasions in the story of the children of Israel and their deliverance from Egypt in which that phrase is found. And when we look at them, they give us a little bit of context as to what's going on in this story for us today. The fourth is found in our text that we've read. But turn back to chapter 3, and I want you to notice the first time that this phrase is used regarding the children of Israel. Back in Exodus chapter number 3, none of the plagues have taken place yet. The children of Israel have spent 450 years in bondage in Egypt. During that time of darkness, their concept of who God is has began to diminish. They know that they don't serve the Egyptian God, but they really don't know much about the God that their fathers served, the God that spoke to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to Joseph. And the Bible says in Exodus chapter 3 verse 16 that God speaking to Moses says this, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say unto them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared unto me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen that which is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt unto the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites unto a land flowing with milk and honey. And they shall hearken to thy voice, and thou shalt come, thou and the elders of Israel, unto the king of Egypt. And ye shall say unto him, The Lord God of the Hebrews hath met with us, and now let us go, we beseech thee, three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. So the first thing we notice about Israel at this time in their history, they were a people that had experienced a fresh revelation of who God was. Uh, Here they bent 450 years in moral and intellectual and spiritual darkness. Now all of a sudden the light from heaven shines into their dark corner and God speaks to them and reminds them that who He is is who He's always been and He's there to work in their life. 
Aren't you thankful for the day that the Lord shined light from heaven in your soul the same way He did to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus? There you were in darkness with no hope, with no help. You could have groped about and felt about to figure out who God is the rest of your life and not had a clue who He really was. But God shined the light of the truth of Scripture into your heart and your soul and said, this is who I am. All of a sudden, you saw Him for who He really is. And with this is accompanied this promise. You're going to go three days into the wilderness and there you're going to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Look with me in chapter 5. We find that whenever Moses comes to the children of Israel, the elders of Israel, tells them this, uh, they are uh, they are nervous, they are scared, but they are excited, they are brimming with anticipation. Man, after 450 years, our God has showed up and He's promised us He's going to take us out of this place. Three days journey into the wilderness, we're going to worship Him there. It's going to be like it's never been before. What happens in chapter 5? It says afterwards, verse 9, Moses and Aaron went in to Pharaoh and told Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey His voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. And they said, The God of the Hebrews hath met with us. Let us go, we pray thee. Here we have it again. Three days' journey into the desert and sacrifice unto the Lord our God, lest He fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. And the king of Egypt said unto them, Wherefore do ye, Moses and Aaron, let the people from their works get you unto your burdens? And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land now are many, and ye make them rest from their burdens. And Pharaoh commanded the same day the taskmasters of the people and their officers, saying, Ye shall no more give the people straw to make brick as heretofore. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. And the tale of the bricks which they did make heretofore, ye shall lay upon them, and ye shall not diminish aught thereof, for they be idle. Therefore they cry, saying, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Notice verse 9. Let their more work be laid upon the men, that they may labor therein, and let them not regard vain words. So the next time it appears, you know what we're told? These are a people that have experienced a fresh revelation of God, but then these are a people that have experienced a fierce persecution in response to it. So what's the point of this preacher? I'm telling you this, their victory was hard won in the land of Egypt. Hey, the devil didn't want to let him go. <laughs> Whenever Pharaoh answers back and you can hear the spite and the scorn in his voice, who's the God of the Hebrews? I don't worship that God. Why should I listen to that God? And you know, that's the very same thing the devil does in a man's life whenever he starts to make steps towards God. The devil's going to show up and say, hey, you may have signed up to leave, but I didn't sign up to let you go. Even when they left Egypt, they left with the chariots and horsemen of Egypt hot on their trail and hot on their track. I'm telling you this, if you make a decision to stand for God, the devil's going to make a decision to stand in opposition to you. He will make sure. Have you ever noticed in your life when you get serious about God, the devil gets serious about you? You make up your mind to serve Him and all of a sudden it's like all hell is unleashed against you. That ain't by accident, friend. The devil's trying to stop you from serving God. We find in chapter number 8, the third occasion of it. Turn with me to chapter 8 and notice verse number 25. Now, things have changed a little bit now. God's been, God's been dealing with Pharaoh in, in a pretty harsh way. He's been bringing plagues upon the land of Egypt and seeking to break the hand and the will of Pharaoh. And the Bible says in verse number 25 of chapter 8, Pharaoh called for Moses and for Aaron and said, Go ye, sacrifice to your God in the land. Moses said, It is not meet to do so, for we shall sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians 
to the Lord our God. Lo, shall we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes? And will they not stone us? Can I pause there and just give a little composition and exposition there? He's talking about sacrificing lambs. And he's saying the Egyptians despise and deride shepherds. In fact, they despised Joseph when he came in. You know why? Because Egypt didn't value lambs. Can I tell you this morning? I, I thought y'all was with me. Egypt doesn't value lambs. The world don't value the Lamb of God. Uh, in fact, all we're trying to do is worship Him, live for Him, and serve Him. And just like Egypt of old, the world in vitriol, anger, rage, uh, seemingly irrational hatred will stand in opposition. Moses said, if we go out there and sacrifice a, a lamb or a sheep to our God, the Egyptians will stone us. And he was exactly right. Can I tell you, you serve God today, it's going to make the world mad. And so Moses, he answers back, he says, we can't do that. But here's what we'll do, verse 27, Pharaoh. We will go three days' journey into the wilderness, we see it again, and sacrifice to the Lord our God as He shall command us. Now, this is interesting. Pharaoh, he tries to compromise. Pharaoh said, I will let you go. That was the only true thing he had said so far. I will let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. He says, only ye shall not go very far away in treat for me. Here we have the third instance. But can I just interject a little bit of the finish of the story here? Pharaoh said, I'll let you go, but I'm going to let you go a little ways for a little while. We know the rest of the story. <laughs> they came out of Egypt, uh, the Bible says, with a high hand, loaded down with the treasures of Egypt, with the blood of the sacrificial lamb on their doorposts and over their souls. They left by the hand of God, the protection of God, through a parted Red Sea to freedom and to deliverance. I'd say this, they were a people that experienced a fresh revelation and a fierce persecution, but they were also a people that experienced a fantastic salvation. Man, I mean, Pharaoh says, I'm only, only going to let you go a little ways, but he wasn't the one that got to decide that. Aren't you glad the devil don't get to decide whether you get saved or not? Oh my, I'm going to say that again. Aren't you glad the devil didn't get to decide whether you could get saved or not? You may tell yourself he does, but you're just lying to yourself. He can't keep you from getting saved. He's not the God of the universe. Hey, but the God of the universe has said, any that come unto me, I'll in no wise cast out. Quit giving the devil credit for things he ain't got the power for. He can save you, and he saved the people of Israel. He brought them out with a great deliverance. I'd say this, things is going pretty well. It, it, they are a people that have been excited at the prospect. I mean, you imagine, we don't know how long the plague's took place, how long they unfolded, but surely for weeks, maybe months, maybe even over a year, you can imagine the buzz, the excitement, uh, the brimming optimism that's flowing through the camp of the Israelites. They're talking to each other, man, can you believe God has spoken to us again? For 450 years, we've not heard the voice of God, but now God's dealing with us again as a people. For 450 years, we've been waiting for this time when God would lead us out, and they make the decision to trust God. We're going to leave Egypt. We're going to go with God. All of a sudden, and the devil starts fighting them. Pharaoh starts fighting them. But they don't give up. They keep saying, no, we're going to keep pushing on. We're going to keep trusting God. Then all of a sudden, here comes that tenth plague. All of the firstborn in Egypt are slain. They see the mighty power of God. You can imagine the whole thing that's driving them is this idea, we're going to go three days in the wilderness and we're going to have church. We're going to go out there. I like how Moses says it. He says we're going to have a feast. There ain't nothing wrong with feasting at church. Somebody say amen to that. 
We're going to go out we're going to have church, man. It's going to be like you've never seen. We're going to sing songs that Egyptian ears won't bear. We're going to give testimonies that darkened hearts won't hear. And we'll finally be able to gather as God's people and see Him and worship Him and know Him. What a glorious thing it'll be. I'd say this, they were a people that experienced a faithful expectation. They left Egypt with a high hand, brimming with anticipation, excited to get three days out and find the place that God had prepared to worship the Lord, to enjoy the Lord, to be able to worship Him in freedom and in liberty. Exodus 15.22 tells us what happens when they get there. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea and they went out into the wilderness of shore and they went three days into the wilderness. What do they find? The Bible says there they found no water. I want to preach to you on this thought this morning. Looking for a blessing, but finding it barren. Looking for a blessing, but finding it barren. For all this time, they were excited. They had trusted God. They had believed God. They had served God. They had imperiled their own life. They had displaced themselves from a life that though it had slavery and bondage, it also had a certain amount of security and stability for them. In fact, later on, one of the criticisms they'll make to Moses when they're hungry, they'll say, you bring us out here where there are not graves enough in Egypt. You brought us out here to starve to death. But we were far better sitting by the flesh pots of Egypt than we were out here in the wilderness. I, I mean, they were a people whose entire hope was vested in the idea we'll get out of here and it's going to get so much better. Hey, listen, let me give you a little truth about the Christian life. Sometimes God's blessings don't look the way we think they will. Sometimes as you trust and serve God, you're hoping and expecting and anticipating that the moment you give your heart to Christ and the moment that you stand up to serve God, the moment that you get victory over that idol and you push forward to serve the Lord, that it's all going to be sunshine and roses and rainbows and you get there and find a dry and barren place. What are you going to do with it? I want you to notice a few thoughts this morning will be done. Notice first off with me their disappointing discovery. Verse number 22 says this, they found no water. Now, they weren't expecting water. They were expecting much more than water. They expected to go out and find that the Lord had prepared a table for them out in the wilderness, as He later on, by the way, would do. I don't really know everything that they expected. But I'm sure that in the scope of their list, in the scope of what in their imagination, they thought it would be like when they wretched this place three days in the wilderness. I can promise one of the things they weren't expecting is to get there and find not even enough to sustain their very lives. You know, sometimes as you serve God and you live for God, and we all say this, and I think there is truth to it. I think there is a, I think there is a broad, a big truth to it. I, I certainly don't think we should shy away from it. When you serve God, God blesses you. But sometimes in serving God, uh, we begin to commit ourselves to live for the Lord and to serve God. We have certain ideas about what that's going to be like. And then all of a sudden we get there and find there ain't nothing like what we were hoping for. They get there and they find that it's barren. Look what it says in verse 23. The Bible says when they came to Mara, they went a little further. They could not drink of the waters of Mara. Now they found waters. Isn't that interesting? First they found nothing. Now they find waters. And you can imagine for a moment this sort of bolstered. It, it, it buoyed their hope and, and their excitement. They just thought, well man, you know, we, we just, we took, a, we took a left turn, man. Google Maps led us a little bit wrong, but we finally got here. They can see the pool of water. They go up, they grab a big scoop of water and they immediately spit it out. They could not drink of the waters of Mara for they were bitter. 
Therefore, the name of it was called Mara. Not only did they get to this place, they found it barren, but they found it bitter. You know, oftentimes people in life, when things don't turn out the way that they expected them to, and let me say, oftentimes our expectations, we put things in the mouth and heart and mind of God that are not really there. God never told them when they got three days out in the wilderness that there would be uh, crystal clear fountains of running water. He never said that. He said, if you'll come out here, I'll let you worship me. Moses says we're going to go out and have a feast. And by the way, they still had the unleavened bread on them that they could have feasted on. But they get there and they had built all this up in their mind. This is what it's going to look like. This is what it's going to be like. And when they get there and find that it's nothing like what they anticipated, the very water that God gives them is bitter to their taste. Can I tell you, if you ain't satisfied with Jesus, then everything will be bitter to your taste. Until you get satisfied with Him, no matter what your lot in life is, nothing will ever be good enough. Nothing will ever be sweet enough. They get there and find it to be a bitter place. And I've seen believers that because things didn't work out the way that they imagined the will of God will be. I'm not saying God broke His promise. God don't break promises. But they had in their mind, this is what it's going to look like. This is what it's going to be like. And when it's not that way, they grow to be bitter individuals. Oftentimes, they're like Asaph in the 73rd Psalm. They're not bold enough to say it out loud, but you can read it in their eyes. You can read it in, the, in, in their manner. You can read it in their words and the tone of their voice. You can tell they're carrying around this anger. They're carrying around this disappointment, this discouragement, because things didn't work out the way that they had hoped. Look what it says in verse number 24. They found it not only barren and bitter, but the Bible says in verse 24, the people murmured against Moses saying, what should we drink? Now that's an interesting thing. And poor old Moses, man, I mean, he, and I shouldn't say poor old Moses. He was, he, he was somebody that God used and undoubtedly his entrance into glory was a spectacular thing to behold. But if we want to try to sort of sympathize with it, he got everything that people were unhappy with God about, Moses got blamed for. He was the first pastor. Somebody say amen with that. Everything that people was unhappy with God about, they blamed it on Moses. And and he was, I say he's the pastor, he might have been the sound man. Somebody say amen up there in the sound booth. <laughs> Things go wrong! And everybody looks at Moses and says, why'd you bring us out here? Here's what happened. Rather than blowing past that, rather than submitting it to the Lord, rather than resolving to trust God in faith, they instead started to lash out and try to find somebody to blame for what had happened to them. It, it became bitter. It was barren. Then eventually it became burdensome. It changed the way they lived. It changed the way they viewed things. And now they're not singing the song of deliverance that just at the beginning of the chapter they were singing. Now all of a sudden, it's all compliance. Can I tell you this? If you don't deal with your bitterness, it's going to ruin you. It will ruin you. It'll make it where you don't want to even be around yourself. It'll make you a deeply unhappy person. You're going to have to get with God and deal with your bitterness. Otherwise, you're going to drive away everybody that loves you and you're going to absolutely devastate your relationship with the Lord. All of a sudden, anytime you talk to them, all anybody wanted to talk to is how unhappy they were with where God led them. You ever met people like that? You talk to them and all they want to talk about is how disappointed they are in whatever their situation is. How unhappy they are, how unfair life is to them. That was where they were at that moment. It became a burden that they shouldn't have had to have carried. They should have instead given it to the Lord. We see their disappointing discovery. But now let me say something good about them, or at least about Moses. I don't know this really a statement about them, but it certainly is a statement 
about Moses because we see his unrelenting determination. Moses does the right thing in this moment. Look at verse 25. And he cried unto the Lord. Say, preacher, what do I do whenever I'm trying to serve God and trying to live for God? Man, I thought it was going to be this way. I thought it was going to be, I thought once I started serving God, I wasn't going to have no financial problems. I thought when I started serving God, I wasn't going to have any emotional problems. I thought when I started serving God, I wasn't going to have down days. I wasn't going to get discouraged. What do I do when that happens? Here's the first thing he did. He sought the cause in it. He talked to the Lord about it. Moses doesn't understand this any better than the people understand this. And let me just say, there's a lot of times, I'm just going to bear my pastor heart to you. There's a lot of times I don't understand what God's doing in your life any better than you understand it. I don't know why. I don't know why the heartache has touched your life. I don't know why the disappointment has set in. I've seen people over the years that allow bitterness into their heart. When that happens, you begin to criticize everything. I've seen people endure all kinds of unpleasant things and do it with the joy of the Lord. But then when that little matter gets in their heart and life and they grow bitter against God, all of a sudden they've got a criticism for every little thing that takes place. Don't like this. Don't like the carpet. Don't like this. Don't like the flowers. Don't like when we start. Don't like when we let out. Don't like that this song was sung. Don't like that that was done. I'm talking about tolerate all kinds of things for years and then bitterness sets in and they view everything with an eye of cynicism. It becomes a burden to them. It becomes the nature of their life. You say, Richard, what can I do when that happens? Well, you ought to stop and you ought to seek the Lord's heart and mind about it. Seek the cause for it. Here's what Moses did not do. He did not begin to slander God. He instead began to seek God. He he was man of God enough to say this, I don't understand why this is happening, but I know God has a reason for everything that He does. And so maybe before I start slandering God, it would pay me to take a moment and ask Him what He's trying to do in my heart and life. You know, everything that God does, He's got distinct purpose in I can't explain to you. I wish I could, man. I'd, I'd write a book and I'd sell it for a lot more than $5. Somebody say amen to that. To you, if I had an answer for everything that takes place and for why it happens and what God's trying to do, I don't have the answer to that. But can I tell you, I do know somebody that does. Moses, he said, I don't understand this, but I can at least go to the one that has perfect understanding of everything and I can seek him in it. He cried unto the Lord. He, he was determined, one, to seek the cause of it. But then notice what the Lord does. It's so precious. And the Lord showed him a truth which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. Here's what he determined to do. Number one, he determined to seek the Lord in it. Number two, or to seek the cause in it. Number two, he determined to see the cross in it. This tree is, and in that interesting language, you don't say a stick, you don't say a log, he says a tree, a whole tree. What is God trying to do? He's trying to evoke in our mind about another tree that if it's added to our circumstances, can change things. The book of Galatians talks about it in Galatians 3.13. It says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. Let me just give you some friendly advice. When that bitterness sits in, when that disappointment is devastating, don't look to me. Don't look to them. Look to the cross and you'll find the help that you need. He made his mind up that if God would show him a tree that would save and change it all, he wasn't going to turn away from it. Here's what Moses would have done if he'd been like most of us. Well, that's silly. That won't change nothing. Why would it, There's lots of trees in that water. Why, if I threw this tree in it, 
would it change anything? I'll tell you why, because this tree's different than all those other trees. <laughs> this tree's special. This tree has something about it that can change the waters that are so bitter in your life. Notice three thoughts here. One, he says this, and the Lord showed him a tree. We see the sight of the cross. The first thing you gotta do is look to the cross. If you won't look to the cross, you won't get help from the cross. I'm going to say that again. I don't know. It just made me feel good to say it, so I'm going to say it again. If you won't look to the cross, you won't get help from the cross. Now, that's all that God asks you to do is look to the cross. But if you'll look to it, you'll find the help you need. Remember, it would not be long ere the children of Israel would fall prey to serpents that would come and would bite them with a stinging and a lethal bite. And God, whenever He did that, because of the murmuring and complaining of the people, He instructed Moses to craft a brazen serpent and to hang it high on a pole in the midst of the camp. And He said, as you've been bitten by these serpents, all you have to do is look to that serpent on the pole and you can live. It was a picture of Christ on the cross of Calvary. Christ spoke about it in John chapter number 3 he said as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness so shall also the son of man be lifted up but they had to look to the serpent just like you have to look to the cross look to the Savior let me put it real plain look to the example of Christ on the cross look at what he did when he died for you and understand as a child of God that if he can do it then he'll help us through you remember in Hebrews chapter number 12 now let's back up a little bit you remember Hebrews chapter 11 the great hall of faith We often think that that chapter is there to give us a great opinion of the forefathers of Christianity, of of, of true religion. It's not. It's there to give us an appreciation of faith in its power and ability. The purpose is not for us to walk away saying, wow, Isaac and, and, and Moses and Abraham. The purpose is for us to walk away and go, wow, look at how God is when we'll just simply trust Him. And there's a continuous theme throughout that. These all... Uh, having died in the faith, not having received the promises. That all these people, they lived in faith and they died in faith. They died never receiving the things that they were believing God for in this life. It is distinctly tethered to the idea of disappointment. In chapter number 12, listen to what the Hebrews writer says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. And listen, if you want to believe that your mamma up in heaven looking at you, or your papa or, or, or your puppy dog, that's fine it's between you and God. I, I, it doesn't bother me if you think that. I don't think that's what it's saying. I think it's saying the same way that these people were surrounded by a world that was watching the way they lived and were looking to see whether their faith was meaningful. We also are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, a world that is watching us to see if our faith is real. He says, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider Him that endured such contradiction of sinners against Himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your mind. Preacher, what do I do when disappointment is crushing in my life? Look to the Savior. Look to His faithfulness to God that He looked beyond this life. He looked beyond the temporal. He looked beyond the tangible. And He saw what God was doing through His suffering. And He said, if that's what God wants out of my life, then I'll give my life for Him. Looking to the cross. We see the side of the cross. But then He he doesn't just say to to look. He, He tells them a second. It says, which when He had cast into the waters... It made the water sweet. We see the side of the cross, but then we see the supplement of the cross. 
In other words, it wasn't just enough to, in, in an academic way, behold it. He had to interject it into the waters that were so bitter in his life. So, preacher, what do I do in the midst of this? I'd say this, add the same spirit of faith and submission that you've seen in Christ into your own experiences. You've got to add the cross into it. The waters aren't going to be made sweet just by looking at them. The waters aren't going to be made sweet just by you being mad over them being bitter. They'll only be made sweet by you being willing to take that reality of the crucified Savior and apply that in your heart and in your life. Man, there's a thousand places we could go in Scripture. We could talk about Romans chapter number 6 and how that because we're crucified with Him, we're to reckon ourselves dead indeed unto sin. That we're to mortify self and allow Him to live through us. But let me just point one that you probably all are very familiar with. Philippians chapter 2. Paul from a prison cell. And as he writes, you could hear the chains rattling on his wrist said this, let this mind be in you. Here's Paul. He thought he was going to go, <laughs> he thought he was going to go the rest of his life and plant a million churches, and instead he's sitting in a Roman jail. This is somebody that knows something about drinking bitter waters, who knows what it's like to be disappointed. He says to those believers at Philippi, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. In other words, he could have kept being on that equal footing with God the Father throughout the rest of time, never condescended, never abased himself, humiliated himself by being robed in flesh. It wouldn't have been inappropriate. It wouldn't have been wrong. But he made himself of no reputation, verse 7 says, and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, he don't stop there, he goes on. Wherefore, in light of that, because he did that, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord for the glory of God the Father. Paul says you want to know how to deal with disappointment, you want to know how to deal with discouragement, you want to know what to do whenever you come thinking a blessing's happened, you find it barren, you find it bitter, you find it burdensome, you take that same attitude that the Lord Jesus had, that this world and this life is not the end of all of it, that you're not here to serve you and to please you, you're here to serve God and you allow that mentality to be the prism through which you interpret your circumstances. I'll tell you, part of the problem we get so upset, ah boy, I want to be careful how I say it. I get disappointed too. Let me just say that. I get disappointed too. I get disappointed too. I didn't watch the football game yesterday, but I get disappointed too. I, the, I, I, it's, it's Actually, tell me we won. Amen. Boy, I'm glad. I'll tell you. Clinton High School about had us for a second there, but we inched her out, didn't we? I get disappointed too, so don't take what I'm saying as being made in the in strength of confidence in my person, in my personality. That's not what I'm saying at all. We all face disappointment at times, but when that time comes, why why would we expect any better than what we've got anyway? What is it about us? Did we think becoming a Christian? was going to mean that life would now all be about us. It's not Tobianity. It's Christianity. It's Christianity. When you got saved, did you expect... Did some did some TV preacher tell you you was never going to have a problem again? If they did, I'm sorry. I mean, I mean that sincerely. 
If when you got saved, somebody trying to sell you a bottle of oil or a handkerchief told you that when you got born again, life was going to be all pleasant and all roses, I'm sincerely sorry for you. But that is not the reality of Bible Christianity. The fact of the matter is, Bible Christianity, what is it? It it involves sacrifice, selflessness, mortifying self, and allowing Christ to live through us, the supplement of the cross. And then notice this. Notice the sweetness of the cross. Man, I like this. When they did that, the Bible says the waters were made sweet. Man, I like that. He didn't give them new water. He made the waters they had palatable. Tell you what we want. We want God to dry up that bitter water and to carve a brand new river along in our life. But that's not what He does. When you put the cross in it, all of a sudden, there's a sweetness about it. It takes the bitterness out of it. He don't change the waters you're drinking. Instead, He changes your taste buds till you experience them in a different way. <laughs> in other words, we find strength and fellowship with the Savior through the experience of mortifying self and allowing our circumstances to be viewed through the prism of the cross of Calvary. You know what we find whenever all of a sudden we let God have His way in our life and we begin to look at this thing not like, oh my soul, I am so unfortunate. I have been so disadvantaged. I thought it was going to be this way and now it's not this way. When we jettison that idea and instead look at Calvary at what Christianity really looks like and we say, you know, this whole thing of serving God is about putting self aside. This whole thing is about us giving Him the glory in our lives and if if I need glory, there will come a day He'll give glory. But right now I don't need glory. That's not what I'm in this thing for. I'm not in it for me. I'm in it for Him. Then all of a sudden you look at it and say, well, you know, it's not pleasant. I don't enjoy the hard things, but I see that God is bringing good out of them. I see that He is growing me. I see that He is reaching the lives of others. And all of a sudden that same water that when you were focused on you was too bitter to drink has all of a sudden become sweet. Because you say, look what God's doing through it. Calvary was a bitter place. Oh, isn't it sweet to you and I? Hey, do you think there was a moment of Calvary that Christ enjoyed? No! Hey, look, he looked past it, enduring the cross, despising the shame. He saw what God was gonna bring through it. But boy, isn't it sure sweet for us? And by the way, let me say this, it's sure sweet for him now. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him. And giving him a name above every name. Aren't you glad this life isn't in the, isn't the everything? <laughs> the waters all of a sudden are sweet. All of a sudden now they're a place of fellowship. I don't have to wonder where all of uh, Israel was whenever those waters were made sweet. I'll tell you exactly where they were. They all piled up around that watering hole to get as much water as they could. And now there's a fellowship there. Now they're talking to God again, praising Him for what He's done. Now they're talking to Moses again, thanking Him for trusting God. Now they're talking to each other again, not looking at each other with a suspicious eye about who still has a little good water left in the canteen. Now there's a fellowship in all that. There's a sweetness in all that. Let me say that as we put the cross of Calvary in the bitter disappointment of our circumstances, we will find in it a resource, a reservoir of fellowship with God. Paul talked about this in Philippians 3. He said, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung. He's talking about bitter things in his life. When he says the loss of all things, he's writing this from a prison cell. 
Most of his friends have deserted him. Any wealth that he has has been given away or has been robbed from him by the state. This is a man that is sitting there who has no anticipation of anything except that God and Christ will be magnified through his martyr's death. He says, I've lost all those things. But he said, I lost them. And I count them but dung that I may win Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being made conformable unto His death. Paul says, you know, funny thing about it, I, I feel alone in this prison cell, but then I have to remind myself I'm not alone in here. I'm having fellowship in here. You know why? Because Christ is willing to bear my burdens with me. And in the midst of all this, I may say I'm alone. We all say we're alone when we're hurting. We all say nobody understands, nobody sees, nobody knows. We have to tell ourselves that. Lest we find consolation and comfort in the one that never leaves us and never forsakes us. Paul says, you know, when I get over myself a little bit and and when I just commit that I want God to get glory out of my life, I look over and there He sits right beside me. We find fellowship together. We see in this, Moses, he did the right thing. He he determined to seek the cause of it, to see the cross in it. But notice verse 25, to settle their convictions by it. It says in verse 25, There he made for them a statute and an ordinance. There he proved them. And said, If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and wilt do that which is right in his sight, and wilt give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee, which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. In that moment of bitterness and disappointment, but then in that moment of the bitter waters being made sweet, it's like God opens the doors of heaven and says, have you made your mind up yet? Have you made your mind up yet? Have you decided that you're going to serve me no matter what happens? You know what we need to do whenever we find life disappointing? We need to make our mind up that we're not disappointed with Him. We may be disappointed with our friends, with other church people. We may be disappointed with our spouse or with our children or with our parents. We may be disappointed with the world at large. I'm very disappointed with the world at large. But can I tell you, I've got no complaints about Him. He's been good. And if I'm going to get upset and sulk and pout and turn my back, I sure enough shouldn't do it on Him because He's been the only one that's never done me wrong. Uh, he, he determined to settle our convictions in it. We're going to make up our mind here and now. I'll tell you what we need to do. We need to make up our mind here and now. We ain't turning back. We ain't going back. We're going to go forward. We're going to serve God. Even when things don't turn out the way we hope, we're going to go on. We're going to serve God. And that's what they did. I like verse 27. Here's the next thing they determined to do. It says they came to Elam. You know what they didn't do? They didn't stop. They didn't stop. They kept going. They made up their mind they were going to stay the course beyond these bitter waters. They were going to keep serving God, keep following God no matter what happened in their life. They were going to keep pressing forward. You know, I've seen people drown in their bitter waters. I've seen people who life has touched them in some way, some tragedy, some calamity, and that has become the touchstone in their life. That has become the, the defining moment in their life. And they just sit there and they soak and drown in their bitter waters. Listen, I, I'm not I, I'm not defending anything that's happened to you. I'm not saying what they did was right. I'm not saying what the world's done to you is right. I'm not saying I like whatever is taking place in your life. But I am telling you this, you're going to have to get up and move beyond it or it's going to bury you. It's going to bury you. They made their mind up. They were going to stay the course beyond it. Notice what happened. I like this, verse 27. They came to Elam where were 12 wells of water. 
How silly would those people have felt that sat there and and thirsted to death. I don't know how you say that. I've always wondered that. I know how you say starved to death. I guess you thirst to death. That sounds weird to me. How strange would they have felt that just sat there and, and wasted away by bitter waters that they refused to drink and refused to allow God to remedy or heal. When just over the hill, man, there were 12 wells of good water. Not only that, there were three score and ten palm trees and the Bible says they encamped there by the waters. I want you to notice their satisfying destination. Hey, praise God because these people decided not to sit there and sulk. They decided not to just wallow in their anger and their bitterness and their disappointment. And I'm not saying they were not rightfully disappointed. I don't care who you are. If you had been in their shoes, you'd have been scratching your head. You'd have been wondering if God knew what He was doing. But because they made up their mind that they was going to put the tree in it, they was going to add the cross to it, God made them sweet waters and they kept on going. And eventually, you know what happened? They wound up in a better place than they even was looking for in the first place. I don't think any of them expected to find an oasis. But here they found one. What did they find? Well, number one, they found a place of refreshment. It says there were 12 wells of water. Of course, each of these corresponding to the tribes of Israel. You know what it tells you? It tells you this. They didn't stumble upon somebody else's water and hole. God had one prepared for them. He had a well for each of the tribes. Not because they couldn't drink water out of somebody else's well, but because He wanted them to know. It's like whenever Saul goes and, and meets Samuel for the first time and Samuel was there uh, participating in a feast there in the town they were in and he had sent word for uh, the priest to when he made sacrifice to set aside a portion of that for Saul, for King Saul distinctly. Why did God do that? He wanted Saul to know he was waiting on him. I would say this, you say, preacher, it's never going to get any better. One, you don't have the authority to say that. Now, I don't have the authority to say that there's no more heartache in front of you. I don't have the authority to say how far that journey will be. I don't know. I know it's too great for thee like it was for Elijah. But when you say, preacher, it ain't never going to get any better, you don't know that. You don't have the authority. You're speaking as God when you say that. You don't know that. If you'll just keep on going, you know what you'll find? I'm not saying it'll be what you're looking for or expecting, but there'll be a place of refreshment for the journey. If you'll commit that you'll go on, if God will help you go on, God will give you what you need to go on. There's a place of refreshment. Then the Bible says there were three score and ten palm trees there. That's interesting. It's easy to look at that and say, oh, well, great, that's good. You're not going to eat palm trees. But you know, palm trees in the Bible are associated with the idea of victory. In fact, the name Elam means palms. You know that the most prominent times that palms are mentioned in the entirety of the Word of God is in the New Testament when the Lord Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey and they take leaves of palm trees and lay them down. It is a great scene of victory and triumph for Israel as a nation if they had been willing to see their king in it. It reminds me of this. He brought them to a place of refreshment, but He brought them to a place of victory and of rejoicing. I know you think you ain't never going to worship like you once worshiped, but if you'll keep trusting God and going with Him, you will. I know you think you ain't never going to find that peace again. I know you think there's nothing to rejoice about, but I'm sorry that's not true. If you'll go on trusting God, you'll find He'll give you a place of rejoicing. And then, I like this, the Bible says they encamp there by the waters. <laughs> I like that. I would have done that. <laughs> Uh, that you say, preacher, why did they encamp by the waters? The same reason we go, we go to buffets. Amen? 
I went to a buffet last night. What is it? Big, ugly, fat folks eating together? Is that what buffet? B-U-F-F-E? I went to a buffet last night, man. And they knew that I had been there. I like it. Say, preacher, why do you like buffets? Because I have a healthy fear of commitment. I just want to be able to eat, you know. So you know what they did? They encamped there. They didn't know where there would be water next. But you know what they found? They said, this would be a good spot to just set up and rest. You know what they found? They found a place of refuge. They found a place where the water wasn't so bitter and the sun wasn't so hot. They found a place where they could do exactly what God had told them they would do. They went three days' journey into the wilderness. They reached the end of their desert GPS, and they said, this is it. And they found nothing but bitterness and barrenness there. If they had just kept walking till God stopped them, you know what they would have found? They would have found the very place better than they had ever imagined that God wanted to bring them to. The problem was they stopped when they thought that God should have allowed them to stop. Not when He was leading, not when He was directing. And I'm not trying to impugn to you anything, any any wrong or error or disobedience to God for whatever disappointments you're facing. But I'm telling you this, if you stop and die by those bitter waters, it'll be a great tragedy. Because if you'll keep going with God, if you'll keep serving God, you'll find a place of refreshment, rejoicing, and refuge in Christ Jesus. Let's bow together this morning. Musician's going to come play and... You know you don't have to wait for the first note to be played. You really ought to be getting out of your seat right now if God's dealt with you. If you're waiting, you're just giving the devil an opportunity to bully you into not coming. So if God dealt with your heart about something, come find a place at this altar. I'll tell you what you're probably thinking. You're probably thinking, if I go down there, people are going to think I'm bitter. If I go down there, people are going to think that I'm disappointed with God. No, here's what they're going to think. Number one, what they think don't matter. But number two, if they think anything... I'll tell you what they'll think. Well, there's a human being that gets disappointed just like I do, that struggles just like I do, that needs help just like I do. There's no shame in getting the help from God that we need. So once you slip out of your seat, come find a place in this altar and let Him be that place of refuge that you need in your life. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify Your Son in Jesus' name.